If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning in this special episode. Great way to kick off 2019 with this guest, Patty McCord. So excited to have her on here. She's the co-creator of the Netflix Culture Deck. She's also the author of Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. And I tell you, when it comes to recruiting, motivating, and creating great teams, Patty McCord says most companies have it all wrong, and I agree with her. Patty helped her create the unique and high-performing culture at Netflix where she was chief talent officer. In this book, Powerful, which I highly recommend and has become a go-to for me and my leadership journey, She shares what she learned there and elsewhere in the Silicon Valley, and we talk about it in this conversation as as well. Patty McCord advocates practicing radical honesty in the workplace, saying goodbye to employees who don't fit the company's emerging needs, and motivating with challenging work, not promises, perks, and bonus plans. I absolutely love it. Patty argues that the old standbys of corporate HR, annual performance reviews, retention plans, employee empowerment, engagement programs, often end up being a colossal waste of time and resources. Amen to that. Her road-tested advice, offered with humor and irreverence, provides everyone with a different path for creating a culture of high performance, freedom, and profitability. This show is brought to you by my sponsors at RSM Marketing. Look, if you're feeling overwhelmed by expanding marketing tactics, you're going to want to check out my friends at RSM Marketing. They've been huge supporters of this show. I personally know one of the partners, Mike Schneider, has become a friend, and RSM employs dozens of specialists and experienced marketing directors that act as your outsourced marketing department. Companies hire RSM because the complexity of marketing is growing exponentially, and companies don't want to hire and manage a large team of marketing professionals. I truly get that. Outsourcing allows us to get access to a full team of specialists with a flat monthly subscription rate, often as low as the cost of a single marketing full-time employee. Think about that. If you want to learn more, schedule a meeting with my friend, Mike Snyder, managing partner, directly, and he'll get you all the information you need. Go to rsmconnect.com slash doseofleadership, and you can click on the link in the post. But that's rsmconnect.com slash doseofleadership to learn more. And now, let's enjoy this conversation with Patty McCord on Dose of Leadership. Well, Patty, what a thrill. So excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, would it creep you out if it said that I was in love with you? Would that make you? Feel <laughs> <weird>? <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you a story, Richard. I, I, the first time I went to South by Southwest after I left Netflix, there was a guy, a classic. He had a man bun and tight coral pants. Right. <laughs> you know, right. He, this classic hipster guy comes running after me and he goes, are you Patty McCord? And I thought, have I dropped my wallet? <laughs> right. <laughs> do something bad and I'm like yeah and he goes I'm such a fanboy and it was a little bit creepy I have to I have to tell you I will. I mean it. I mean it in the agape love sense because I just. I you. Know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording this, and it, obviously I came from the Marine Corps, and, and a lot of what I talk about and coach and teach. A lot of it came clear to me when I got away from it and that whole small unit leadership model. It it was the most loving organization I was ever in. And a lot of people are kind of shocked by that. But when I came across Powerful, of course, came across the slide deck like millions have, um, it just resonated with me. And I think you even said, too, that, you know, you've had Navy SEALs and all these small unit leaders because that is exactly how we did it there. And it's just so refreshing. It was for me when I came across your stuff and been a fan of followers. It's interesting that you use the word love because, you know, part of what I talk about is how, 
you know, you're not a family and that yes. companies and organizations aren't like family. And that's a very different kind of relationship and that, you know, it's more of a team-based approach. But it's funny because since I've been talking, uh, since I wrote the book, I've, I've now started interjecting. That doesn't mean you can't make lifelong friends, right, right? Right. That doesn't mean that you don't have a very special relationship with the people that you work at, all I work with. And, and I think about it that in a loving way too. I mean, I'm still in touch with tons of people I've worked with in my career and they're my best friends. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And you can, and, and the, the, and I'm with you too. That was always been one of my pet peeves of like, why well, we're not a family here because I mean, I, I have a drunk uncle Louie that I can only tolerate and Christmas and Thanksgiving. I don't want to work with him. You know <laughs> I, mean? I always say that to him. Like, how many of you come from dysfunctional families? You really want the whole world to be like this? Right. Exactly right. But the professional team analogy is perfect because what do professional teams do? They're always pushing each other. They're finding the best talent. They're cutting the wheat, you know, when it doesn't work out anymore and all that stuff. And that's just the way it is. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I love that analogy. I, I've, when I read that, I use that a lot in my consulting and coaching and it's Stop calling yourself a family. You know, this is a business. Yeah. We're trying to add value to the world. And that is means life and death things, right? And so. Let's yeah, I, I was in the audience in the, back in um, more Texas stories and the coach of the San Antonio Spurs was speaking. And it happened to be an audience full of very sensitive leadership people, a lot of, a lot of DNI people. I'll talk about that later. But um, somebody said in the audience, ask him, you know, this must be so difficult for you to recruit all of these stellar young people who are these amazing athletes and spend a whole season playing the game and where they work so hard and they put their whole souls into it. And in the end you have to cut some of them. Doesn't that just break your heart? And he goes, no, it's professional basketball. (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> they know what they signed up for. Exactly. And I'm in the office. Thinking, why can't we just say that? Right. Well, right. Why can't we just, you know, and the expectation is on both sides. In order for us to be able to say that, we'd have to have employees who say, you know, I'm done. Right. Ready yeah. to do something different. I'm ready to move on. So we, it takes both of us to be able to look at it. Well, I contend that the currencies that are, that are so vacant and what's so needed in all aspects of life and particularly business are authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability, which are very, th- you know, things that I think we kind of suck at. But when we, mm-hmm. when we grasp it and we realize the power behind it, your, your whole world can change. Yeah. I mean, that's your whole idea about brutal honesty too, right? I mean, let's just get on with it. We, we, we're too, we got, the time is too short. Let's just get with it, right? And let's yeah. Yeah. You know, I always tell people that the thing about being, and, and brutal is probably the word that gets me in trouble because I don't right. mean being brutal. I mean, just being straightforward and honest. But I tell people like, here's the deal, like politics, if I'm going to stab you in the back, I got to find a knife. You got to turn around. I got, hopefully I'll kill you. I got to get rid of the. I mean, this is a lot of work and it's just a lot easier for me to say, Richard, that makes me crazy. Please stop doing that. Right. (laughs) Well, I think that's one of the things I missed when I got out of the Marine Corps and people asked me when I was, you know, I'd been in the corporate arena and like, what did you like about it? And I made a conscious effort not to be that guy like, well, this is how we did it in the Marine Corps, right? I I, I, I didn't want to be that guy, but you know, people would ask me and I would kind of you know, I would take the good things and try to see how they applied in the real world. And one thing I did miss was that candor, that the thing when I'd walk in the squadron and, and you'd walk in and, and maybe you didn't look as good as you were supposed to in your uniform because that that's part of the culture, right? That's important for the Marine Corps culture. Uh-huh. And he's like, what are you doing? You look like a bag of donuts. Get out of here and go <laughs> fix that. You know, and just that straightforward like that. And it's not like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. I do look like a, okay, you know what I mean? You didn't sulk and you didn't yeah. sit in your corner and pout. You just got on with it, you know? Yeah, you know, I, sp- I spend a lot of time talking to women's organizations these days. And um, I did a talk uh, last year with um, like Girls in Tech was the name of the, the group. And it was young women earlier in their career. And, you know, one of them told me later, weepily, that I said what I said profound, that profoundly affected her was when somebody does something that makes you uncomfortable, you have to tell them now right. when you're 24, 
right? Mm-hmm. Because I, don't look at, don't, don't, please do not look at my body. Please look at my eyes when you talk to me because it makes me uncomfortable and it feels weird. And that person will go, oh, I'm sorry. And they'll stop doing it. Right. It's just, you know, that's, and it's not, it's not, you know, you don't have to go uh, complain to HR to tell their boss to tell them that they made some anonymous person uncomfortable. Uh, It's just such spot on. I mean, it sounds so, I mean, that, that is such common sense. You're right. And I have four daughters and I try to impart that on them. It's like, why? Okay. Just Just tell them. Just tell them. Yeah. Because, okay. Yeah. Maybe one, they didn't realize they were doing it. And if they were. Um, I guarantee they'll probably stop next time. And you do that with that, that kind of assured confidence. Wow, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's powerful on both sides. I think sure, I, so, I agree a hundred percent. Right. Um, but I, but I mean, to extrapolate that into a, you know, a broader sense, it, it's the same message as when I'm coaching a CEO of a company and I say, you've got to tell them that you're not hitting the sales target. Right. Right, because they need to know the difference between profit and revenue, <laughs> and that without revenue, there's not profit. And so they can collectively understand where they sit on the team in order to make that change so the company is successful. And it, you know, the, our traditional form of uh, organizing companies is that information is is secured at the top and nowhere else. Right. And so, I mean, it's, it would be interesting to talk to you about that because, you know, people always use the term command and control. But when I talk to people who are in highly functioning military organizations, including, you know, generals and people that I've talked to about it, they say, no, 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 no. Command and control is that we're all in control. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And we agree on what we're going to do. And we all know that we have to do our best to pull it off, um, which is not wait until somebody tells you what to do to do the right thing. Right. That, and that's the secret sauce. And that was probably the biggest, the most glaring um, difference I noticed that I took for granted. And when I got into the corporate arena, I was like, wow, you don't do this. I mean, how did you become a 26, 27 or even a hundred million dollar company with what? with this kind of hierarchical command and control. And you're right. There is this perceptions that in the military, it's this huge top down approach, but that just breeds stagnation and mediocrity. If I got to, if the eyes on the opportunity on the front lines have to send decisions up some hierarchical decision tree, you would never win a battle because battles are chaotic, unpredictable. And so it's, it's about spending your limited resources on, individually and as as a team being that composed force within the chaos and instead of well let's create all these regimented processes that try to eliminate the chaos in the meantime we destroy creativity and and flexibility right and so you got and and, and, you know back to how we started the conversation the other thing is that um it erodes trust exactly um and it's and that's a you know, there's another word that gets all touchy feely. And, (laughs) you know, sometimes I I swap out reliable instead of trust. um, And that makes people feel better about it business wise, right? right. I got to be able to count on you. Right. And when I don't feel like I can count on you, or I feel like you're not going to own up to your responsibility to make decisions, because you're a smart person. <laughs> that you have to wait for permission to do something. I, I was at a I was at a bank in Australia, and I was meeting with their top seven executives, and they were um, talking about how their future. They were very very clear about what they needed to do to change. They were a bank that had a lot of brick and mortar buildings all over the country, and they realized their future is mobile, and it's in the cities. Right? That's that's where banking is going to go. Nobody's going to go into banks anymore. They know that. And so I said to them, if I was a 35-year-old engineer on the mobile app team, and, I, and we thought of a, a feature for the, the, the product that would just make our customers gloriously happy, and we knew how to do it, and we had the right team, and we're absolutely able uh, to pull it off, how many people would I have to ask permission from to actually get going on this? And they all, you know, started mumbling and somebody said, oh, I, you know, it's a couple, but it's not that many. And the, the COO, she spoke up and said, it's 30. It's 30? Oh it's 30. 
right? Because, you know, if you take, well, I've got to get the budget approval and then I have to get the headcount approval and then I have to get the, and I have to get the, she's like, it could be that many people. And they all just stood there stunned, like oh, so much for Agile. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, and there's, and that's the stuff that I, that's kind of my bigger meta message, which is, it, it is about giving people back the power they already have. It is about having people be reliable and responsible, but it's also about sort of systemically just getting rid of all the stuff. I know it's, and we, and it's, 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 we feel like <clears throat> when we lose control, um, particularly if you're in a leadership role, we think, well, I've got to insert myself lower in the organization to take care of this. And and what do you do? You dispense the efforts of those around you who should be doing it. And you, and then what, what have you done? You've just increased even more bureaucracy and more chance to fail. And then yeah. we need to work the plan and more detail in the plan. And to me, de- more detail is the enemy, right? The, the whole idea is to have the senior leadership maniacally focused on the intent of what you're trying to accomplish and why, and then let, and this turn people loose. And I think that's a lot what, when I think you kind of highly aligned, loosely coupled kind of mindset uh-huh. in your deck, it's, it's the same thing, what we call in the Marine Corps commander's intent where uh-huh. you're, you're focused on, and I don't use the word maniacally lightly communicating what you're trying to do and why. And if you know that the lower you go, then the more apt you're going to make decisions that support that. Absolutely. I hundred percent with you on that. Yeah. And I think that that is, um, you know, that ability to communicate as a leader where you're going, what you're doing, that intent, um, that's the skill that we least value in some ways, right? right. Mm -hmm. We value uh, make the ability to make the decision for somebody else over the ability to educate somebody about so that they can make the right decision themselves. The other thing that I was thinking about as we were talking about this was um, the other thing is sometimes you just got to let people fail on their own Uh and learn their mistakes. So I'm, I'm coaching this CEO, startup CEO, he's young, and uh, he says, please come work with me. Please, you know, we're growing so fast and we just got this new funding. And I know that if I had you here, if I knew that you were around, you could stop me from making a bunch of mistakes that I'm surely going to make. And I said, you know, that's, that's absolutely true. But then you wouldn't learn anything. Right. And I said, so you probably should fire your sister's boyfriend because he's kind of an idiot. And he goes, oh, my God. (laughs) Did did somebody tell you? (laughs) Always that person. That's so funny. (laughs) You know, startups aren't full of people who are um, professionals. They're full of people who think it's a good idea and are willing to work hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm like, and I can't, I can tell you, you already know that's the right thing to do, but you have to do it. Well, it just, it always goes back to, you know, we're ta- even talking about the difficult conversations, you know, the brutal honesty. <clears throat> it's just people just hate, and we just hate it. We hate the conflict. I do. But I think the thing that helped me was if I could just, it's kind of like the, the, the bad breath analogy, you know, if my wife tells me I'm about to walk out the door with dragon breath and she tells me she's doing it out of love, right? She's not doing it to make me feel bad. And so that's how I yeah. approach difficult conversations, right? No. And I think that's, that's a really deep, important premise to, in order to have open and honest conversations, you have to, um, you have to do, know what you're doing it for. I mean, you and I used the analogy already of a professional sports team, but it's the idea of winning for the customer or the client. Mm-hmm is what I talk to people about. When I, when I talk to school people at schools, I'm like, it's not about you. It's about your students. Right. Right. It's a product that, you know, at Netflix, we're like, does this make a customer happy? And if not, let's take it off the table. Yeah. You would- that and that, and with, and then we can disagree. We can argue, we can, you know, it's not a difficult conversation. It's an exhilarating conversation when you both want the best result. Yeah, it's having the discipline and the awareness, like you said, that outward focus. And, and I think it's, I kind of equate it to even aviation and flying a plane. When you look at all the mishaps that happen, it's because someone became channel locked on something, right? I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. the occasional, or maybe a TWA 800 where the plane blows up, but that is so rare. Um, most accidents and incidents happen because someone becomes channel locked. So as an aviator, professional aviator, you're 
and as a leader, you're always trying to pull yourself back to get the bigger picture. And I think when you, what you're saying in businesses, I think a lot of that stuff becomes easier or the problems become uh, less of an issue when the perspective is, well, what are we trying to do here? And it, and it should always be on the, how are we trying to help save, help the customer? I mean, a lot of yeah. that outward focus kind of solves or brushes over some of the sins, I think. I don't know. Yeah. I used to tell my team, um, yes, we are a service organization. It's not spelled S E R V A N T S. And the people we serve don't work here. Right. Right. The, the people we serve are, are ourselves when we go home at night and turn on the TV or right stream something on your. So, I mean, that, that, so I, I totally agree that when that, when that outward focus is internalized, <laughs> that's a pretty good twist, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then, then, then we owe each other honest conversations. And you know, the other thing about um, how difficult it is to have conflict conversations it's you, you've done it. I've done, it's not that hard. Here's how you get better at it. You practice. Right. Right. I mean, that's why I go ballistic about getting rid of the annual performance review, because in many firms, that's the only conversation you ever have about your performance. You're right. You know, it's crazy. And, and like once a year, I mean, I, I, and I go crazy, but I'm like, really, what else do you do once a year that you're good at? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. And you're telling me 12 months. In fact, it's so funny you brought that up because even the company I was consulting with, they just finished up their performance reviews. And one of the guys came to me and he's like, really? I, you're tell- so 12 months and I just find out about this night and I have no room to adjust. And oh, by the way, my compensation was um, towards what you just told me that I, ha- I had no idea about and did had no room for to improve. Right. It's just it's an insane cycle. Right. Yeah, and, and it's back to the conversation we just had about just telling people in their face, right? <laughs> um, I, tell them, I tell them, look, if you can't in the meeting say, hey, by the way, Richard, we've been talking for an hour about this thing that you completely disagree with, and we're about to make a decision, and you haven't said a word, <laughs> um, because, and you've been talking to me about it for three months, is this because you've, we've changed your mind? Because I think the rest of us need to hear, you know, your, what you've been telling me. And I tell people, if you can't do that in the meeting, then at least do it right after, which is, right. by the way, things didn't go the way you wanted them to go because you didn't speak. Right. <laughs> we can't hear you <laughs> if you don't say anything. And, you know, and then when I coach larger teams, I'm like, if you're, you know, if your people are complaining that there's too many meetings and we're not getting enough stuff done, then I need you to pay attention to the participants in the meeting who don't participate. Yeah. Right. So if people are actually showing up and not participating, that says email to me. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, uh, (laughs) no reason to gather together to listen, right? Right. That that we can do this with a podcast. We can do it with video. We can, you know, let's use the technology that we have to communicate to each other. But, you know, in-person conversations should be conversational. It sounds, Um, yeah, it it, it was amazing. But again, that's just, that's what I'm talking about. That's the constant hygiene in your organization. It, you know, when I get called on to, you know, come fix our culture, (laughs) you know, like it's not, that's not how it works. It's this constant evolution of an organization. And if you want it to evolve into a good place, then you have to nurture the habits of making it a great organization. And that's what I'm talking about. And this constant hygiene of stop doing stuff, it doesn't matter. Well, right. And I love how you put that, that constant hygiene. I always use the word discipline sometimes. Maybe that's a word that yeah, kind of freaks people too. out too. But it, No, it, I like it too. <laughs> but that's what it is, isn't it? I mean, we can talk about it all day long and look at all our, you know, we. it's always funny when they <clears throat> spend – a bunch of time in an offsite and maybe even bring him to consultant like us and help him come up with the mission, vision values, which again, something that I, that, I, that almost drives me crazy too, because then they'll go spend all that time. They spend more money on the marketing budget to print up the nice flyers and the, and the eight and a half by 11 things hanging in the hall. And then it just sits there and this is like, look, it's the discipline I give a crap about. And you guys aren't even right. And yeah. And, and the thing about that particular sin, uh, the sin of the glossy poster 
is um, it's it creates such cynicism in it the audience, doesn't it? Oh my god, yeah. You know, I, I, I when you talked about discipline, it it's interesting. Part of the reason I I love the word too, and I use it a lot, and it's because I grew up out here in the Silicon Valley, surrounded by software engineers, and um, engineers are very digital people. It's true, all those cliches are somewhat true about them. It's good or bad. It's right or wrong. It's black or white. It's zero or one. Right. right. And any shade of gray or any nuance is just bullshit. Right. They just right. don't buy it. Right. Um, but, and there's a, and there's a misnomer about engineers that, that they don't like any, they don't like rules and they don't like structure and they don't like guide procedures and all that. They hate all that stuff. And it's true. They hate senseless bureaucracy and stupid rules. They're very, very cynical about it, but it's a very disciplined thing they do. They're engineers. Right. Right. And so that what they, they love discipline. They actually love the structure that says, you know, I, I remember talking to a, a, like a vice president of engineering one time and he was really frustrated with a, a person on his team. And I said, he's like, you know, he just doesn't know how to think out of the box. And I said, well, first of all, you have to have a box. <laughs> you know? yeah. He's, he's all over the map because you haven't given him the discipline of which problem is it that you want him to solve. Right. Right. And, you know, looking at something like that compared to the conversation you just told me about, about the annual performance review, that constant sort of, this is the problem that we're working on. This is what success looks like. This is what our time frame is. That's an ongoing conversation Never that stop. everybody should have. Yeah. All the time, Never right? Stop. And so that I don't have any problem with once a year saying, "Well, let's take a look at all these problems you solved, and think about you know what what you loved about them, and what problems we have in front of us, and whether or not you're going to be as excited about what we have to do next year as you were about last year, and what we could have done better." And those are fine conversations. But they're a result of this ongoing, you know, heartbeat of communication about how we're all doing as a team. Yeah. And if you're doing you know, it- using the team metaphors and the military is too, right? You don't just go, oh, yeah, boy, whew, that battle a couple of years ago, that was fun. <laughs> well, I always, it's, it, you're right, it's an ongoing thing. And if you're doing it right, then that annual performance review is, there's no surprises. It's almost, it's, it's almost like the person that you're, reviewing is almost kind of doing most of the work. They're like, yeah, I did this right. You know what I mean? Cause we, we've been having that ongoing conversation nonstop to me. It's like, yeah, there's, yeah, there's just so many better ways to do it. I mean, so I guess the other big meta message for me is um, if, if we do things because we've always done it. So that's a red flag, (laughs) right? So now I have to go back and say, Mm -hmm. what was the, purpose of this activity that we always do. So the annual performance review is an easy one to dissect. Oh, it's, it's a process that we put in place to give people feedback on their performance. Okay. You and I just had the conversation. Well, if we were inventing that and we said, let's once a year, look back at the entire year and base your pay next year on it. Right. (laughs) Right. Logical people would go, okay, there's one idea. Anybody else? Right. (laughs) Right. Because we would all acknowledge that it's really kind of a bad idea if the purpose is giving people feedback on their performance. And if it was that, you'd want to make it as close to real time as possible because that's how it really works. Yeah. Right. And if, and you know, I I go off on all this stuff, you know, and pay is market-based. That's the honest truth. Yep. So that, you know, that's, uh, you know, when I talk to, I talk to you, I do a lot of talks with women's groups. I tell them, look, um, when your company talks about engagement, they didn't put a ring on it. And, and interviewing with another company is not cheating on your husband. It's finding out what your value is. Right. And you should absolutely do that your whole life. Right. I just did a talk with a thousand people in the room, um, mostly CEOs in Canada. And I said, raise your hand if you're in the job that you had when you graduated from college. Nobody raised their hand. Nobody raised their hand. And I said, raise your hand if you think it's really important to measure retention. Everybody raise their hand. Everybody raises their hand. I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's not true. We all know that that premise that you're going to join a firm and be there for life has never been true. Yeah. You know, maybe in 1963, I don't know, when everybody came back from World War II. Okay, let's give it that. But that was 
That was a really, really, really long time ago, decades ago. Right. It's a great so, point. That it, it, so why even chase that myth anymore, right? It's kind of like, why are we even measure? Why are we getting wrapped around the axle about retention, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, yeah. I mean, and it's a, because why? Right. Yeah, and I, I tell people that, you know, and people say, well, because, you know, you don't want to lose institutional knowledge. And I'm like, well, okay, that's probably true in an institution. Well, it, it, great point, because I think that if you're and it goes back to the hiring process, what are you doing? I mean, you know, are you hiring towards, you know, character and competence or, or, or you know, are you hiring a, a slick resume? Right. I mean, and if you're hiring the right the right person, then. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm very specific about hiring. I, I, I have a very disciplined methodology. You're hiring somebody to hire to solve the problem that's exactly. in front of you. Exactly. And so you certainly want that person to have integrity and honesty and, you know, all those important values, whatever it is in your organization. Oh, by the way, there are plenty of organizations out there that actually don't value integrity or honesty. Right. They just say they do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but like, let's say you really mean that. Um, it, none of that matters if you can't solve the problem. Right. That's the key. It's a solving the problem. Like, what's the objective we're trying? It's to me. It's like you're exactly right. It's like the it's the same mindset. It drives me crazy when I hear people say, "I love when a plan comes together," or we, or something something goes to hell in a handbasket. They say, "We've got to rework the plan." I'm always saying, "Work the objective, right? Don't work the plan." Does that make sense? I mean, it's yeah, kind of yeah. the same thing in hiring too, right? It's like, yeah. what are we trying to solve? What are we trying to do? Yeah, the other thing we don't do very well in organizations, and I didn't really realize this until I stepped away from organizations, <laughs> uh, is that we're not particularly good with timeframes. Mm. Right. I mean, I, I, I want to think about work, um, you know, as a series of what is it? Uh, what's his name? Uh, ben Horowitz says, you know, it's a series of engagements with people or a series tours of duty, people mm-hmm. call it. And I, I don't see any reason why we can't go, you know, this problem, Richard, I, you'd, I think you'd be really important part of the team. I think it's going to take us a couple of years to solve it. And so just want you to know that up front. Yeah. Right. That's as far out as we can, uh, anybody can realistically predict. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of two years, you can go, wow, we built this amazing thing. And now that it's built, we don't need to do it again. Right. Right. So I'm a builder and that's what I like to do. So now I got to, now it's up to me to go find some place where I can build something new and different that really matters to the organization. Well, see, and I love that approach. And I mean, some people might on the front say, well, that'd be scary and maybe be kind of cold. But I think even on the, as the receiver end of that, if I know, I'm like, Hey, you know, I might not need you after two years. All right. Well, let's just get on with it then. And it gets me focused instead of trying to, I guess, hold. And I think what we see a lot is, is holding on to this myth of 1963. Right. And I think that, yeah. I think that holding on to that myth drives a lot of the, the kind of the dysfunctions we see, particularly in large organizations, you know, the stagnation. Yeah, of the I think some of my thinking comes from, uh, you know, my background is as a recruiter. And so when I talk to company leaders now, I say, it's your job to make sure that the teams in your organization do resume worthy tasks, (laughs) resume worthy. So that let's take that example. If you're on the team that built that particular part of the product or whatever it is in two years, that is something that is resume worthy, right? You accomplish something really important that's right. and that's leverage for your next job. And when you look at your own life and your own work as a series of accomplishments that would lead to bigger, better, more interesting problems to solve, then, you know, then you don't passively wait for someone else to take care of your career and then be disappointed when they don't. That's a great because, point. Yeah. because you know, I have this group of, of young people uh, in this sweet startup, and one of them said, uh, the question in the audience was, How do I feel about departmental kegerators? This is in San Francisco, that <laughs> startup. And I said, you know, I'm so old. We used to just call them kegs. <laughs> so now apparently they have an errator function. Yeah, what's the errate, what does the errator part do? I and I said, what, why would you ask me that 
question. And he's like, well, you know, the company down the street, they have one on every floor and we only have one in our lunchroom. And I said, you know, okay, everybody phones down, look me in the <laughs> eye. Come on. And, and you do know that companies don't exist to make employees happy. Yeah. And they had this whole, <laughs> the whole audience, you know, they kind of tilted their heads like dogs do when they hear a sound humans can't hear. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, I'm like, so you guys have this service and your customers give you money and that money they give you, that's called revenue, right? And then you take that money and you spend it on stuff like your salaries, this amphitheater, the swings in the lobby, the kegerators. <laughs> Right. And what's left over is called profit. Oh, wait, you don't have any. Right. <laughs> how do you think this is going to work? Yeah. How long do you think it'll last? Right. Exactly. Well, just, you know, so, so you, you, you are not here to be happier than if you were somewhere else. And oh, by the way, if a departmental kegerator is what really moves you, goodbye. Right. Then you are absolutely in the wrong place. And oh, by the way, that that kind of an organization does not last forever. It doesn't. And I think I think that you're right. You know, and I think when people hear that word culture, I think Mm -hmm. that's where a lot of people gravitate. That's what they think. It's about, you know, the beanbag lounge, free workspace, bring your dog and all that other stuff and the foosball tables and the kegerators. But yeah, it's the cult to me. It's culture is isn't. I mean, that's fine if that is your culture. I'm not fine. Have a ping pong table. I don't care. But what are we trying to do here? You know, when we're trying to. Yeah, to I mean, me, I, I'm I'm very anthropological about culture. It's the stories you tell. It's the. Right. I'm with you. The, it's the way the teams operate. It's the difference between what you say you're going to do and what you're really going to do. It's the myths. It's the what you celebrate. Uh, you know, I I did another talk with a very old organization, and they wanted to. It was a car car company, and um, they realized that they needed to do a lot of changes, and that the franchise dealerships were maybe they are a thing of the past, right? Maybe we won't go buy our cars at the car dealership. And, um, and I said, and I said, you know, I don't really think I'm the right speaker for this group, Uh (laughs) you know, and I, and I, I tried to talk them out of having me, right. I'm like, really, why don't you call somebody else? I just don't think I'm the right thing. I, you know, I, this is just not my power lane. Let's not do this. And, um, and I said, okay, all right. So the focus of this 700 person fancy hotel convention leadership gathering is so we can talk about innovation and change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, do you do reward awards there? Well, yeah. I'm like, so, and the and people come up on stage with the president of the company and they receive their award. What do you what do you give awards for? Oh, the 50 year of franchise. Oh my god. <laughs> the 30 year of franchise. I'm like, see? <laughs> yeah. Right? You're rewarding doing things the way you've always done it for it's just a, you know, let's just to me, to and me, you want me to talk about innovation, right? To me, the award, they, the trophy should be a big bathtub with a guy sitting in a warm bathtub. That's called bathing in mediocrity, right? That's how I see yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, I get here's the theme of I think this particular show for you and me is it's everything. Culture is everything, everything. right? It's mm-hmm. it's how you operate in that meeting. It's um, when you hear about something that you could have done better. It's what you bring somebody up and clap for. <laughs> it's you know, it's uh, you know, I, I other the same startups that I'm talking about. I'm like, so every Friday at three o'clock, the bartender, the CEO comes in and tends bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really fun. It's a really important part of our culture. <laughs> so that so that the CEO becomes a better bartender. Right, so I, why why are we doing this? Yeah. Why are we doing I mean, I get that you've always done it. You I heard that, but you know, even doing something that you think is kind of fun and kicky and quirky and you've always done it is still something you can look at and go, does this matter anymore? Right. It's, it's, it's having the discipline to always be intent. It's always asking why and being intentional about everything. It's right. I think that's what, well, I know that's why leadership and, and culture building is such hard work because there's a tremendous amount of intentionality behind it. Yeah. And, yeah. and that intentionality demands the discipline demands, well, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And to me, it's about, 
the culture needs to support it's it's solving the age old problem of of closing the gap between strategic planning and execution to so where they become a distinction without a difference and and i think yeah. that that it's just cuz when what you're talking about here is if if it you understand that it is everything and then ten- uh-huh. and the intentionality behind it is about hey everything that i do is about adding value and outward focus and making sure we're taking the company you know taking care of the customer yeah, and it sometimes it's the little things. Like, Absolutely, that was my point. Like we, like we hire somebody to do something that we don't know how to do to help us solve a problem in a new way. And as soon as they speak up and have an idea, we go, oh, no, we tried that. That doesn't work. Right. <laughs> when we specifically hired them to have an, another idea. <laughs> right. Uh, I've been there. I, I, I had a boss one time that in my annual performance review, she said to me very sincerely, you know, Patty, you have a lot of ideas, but we've had them all and they don't work. And so <laughs> really helpful if you would just, you know, and she looked at me very tenderly, just stop having them. Okay? Oh my God. <laughs> you can't make that stuff up. That does, that sounds like a bad episode of The Office. But you know, she she was right. She was right. It was, and I didn't realize until after I left that organization that the, that she as a leader should have gotten rid of me. Right. Right. I mean, I was a terrible fit for that organization. I'm always flying around with some crazy new idea and they wanted to be very, um, and, and, oh, by the way, I learned to appreciate that team later on in my career when I realized, wow, I really need part of this organization that really loves the minutia, that really, you know, is likes to dig deep into some, some uh, administrative problem and solve it efficiently. Um, and I'm terrible at that stuff. Right. But we need each other, right? And so the thing that she did wrong, it wasn't – it was keep me on a team where I – I was terrible at it. Right. You weren't in the right seat. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, I don't, they didn't need any new ideas. <laughs> they just needed to do what they did uh, ever, ever, ever more efficiently. Yeah. Just tweak what they've already been doing. Yeah. That's a great point because I think I, I've been that guy too. I've been where they brought me and they were looking for a fresh new perspective. And then I got there and I'm giving fresh new perspective and they didn't like it. Right. And yeah. Like, right. <laughs> Yeah, I you know I I I remember at Netflix um, once somebody coming in and we said you know actually we tested that and the customers don't like it and he said you know I knew that you were going to give us this answer this was a data scientist and he's like but I ran the data bet uh, about that particular test based on the demographics of the customer base at the time and understand that the underlying demographics of who we're serving now are completely different audience. Um, and it was very factual and it was like, oh my God. And so now, so then for the next couple of years, we kind of went around going, what did we try that failed back then? Right. Maybe right. it was just the wrong time. Right. It's like, right. oh my God, <laughs> all of these total failures, they might be our new idea. <laughs> Do you think the primary, I, I, I've had some pushback from some CEOs or, or sometimes even blank, not even pushback. Maybe it's just blank stares. They didn't quite understand what I was saying. And I kept saying your primary job. And it's typically someone who's came in from the startup world and they're, they're making that natural progression to like, man, I got to start figuring out how to, to lead a larger organization, uh-huh. you know? And I said, your primary job as the CEO is to be a maniacal communicator, always communicating where we're taking it and why. And mm-hmm. And I, I always get, I don't think, and that's why I use the word maniacal because I don't think it's, sometimes we think, well, let's do the annual conference. We'll do a weekly video, mail us in an email blast. And I'm like, yeah. And what else are you doing? What else are you doing? You know, it's the conversations in the hall when you're doing your leadership by walking around and just saying how somebody's doing, somehow weaving in that yeah. intent. I have, conversations. I have, I have two stories for you on that. Um, I did an annual conference for a startup company in, um, they were based in Finland and we were at their global leadership conference and we're having all these breakouts and we come back and the issue is communication. Right. And I say to the CEO says, I can't believe that the issue is communication. I mean, we have a stand up meeting every single Friday. And I said, well, first of all, Bunky, the issue is always communication right? forever. And it's your issue forever. Right. Okay. 
So um, here's the thing that it's it's too granular that every Friday meeting is just step by step by step by step by step. And they want to know where are we going? Right. Right. It's that. So it's that you're communicating tactically very, very well. That's not what they're complaining about. They're complaining about the overarching goal of where we're going. And so that's probably a new skill set for you to be able to talk about that. So what should be the right discipline, right heartbeat for that kind of communication? That you can't do every week because it's too too soon, right? Maybe maybe this means it's time for those meetings to happen monthly. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't mean there can't be weekly meetings. That just might mean that those weekly meetings aren't about you. Right. right. You're not the one that leads the weekly meeting. So that's story number one. Story number two is I'm at Netflix and um, we're in our executive meeting. And one of the things that I often did at the executive meeting was I would say, have we made any decisions here today and how are we going to communicate them? And so one of the things is something that is something that we are, uh, we've talked about before, but we want to reiterate it again. My CFO says, I can't believe I have to go out and say this again. I mean, if somebody in my organization doesn't know this already, then they probably shouldn't be there because this is totally obvious and everybody knows it. And I said, well, you know, we've hired 40 people in your organization since you last had this conversation and they don't know. They've never heard you say it. And our CMO was from Procter and Gamble. She was the product manager for Pantene shampoo. And she says, have you ever read the back of the shampoo bottle? And he's like, wait, wait, what are we talking about? We're not shampoo. What what do you mean? She says, it says lather, rinse, repeat on the back of the shampoo bottle. She's like, you don't have to, it just sells more shampoo. But I've, I've come to the conclusion that our job as managers, 50% of it is just lather, rinse, repeat. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god so that was our that was our sort of secret right. uh, you know i would say okay everybody and everybody in unison would go lather rinse repeat <laughs> <laughs> i love that story that's funny <laughs> yeah, it's good. yeah so i mean it's that it's 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 the communication about not only where are we going, what we're doing, what good, you know, what excellence looks like, what satisfied customers look like, but it's also communicating the, when we misstepped and when we were wrong, I I tell people, here's how you teach the discipline of good communication in your organization. You know, that person who always finds the problem, the, the problem finder, and they think that's a really special job because they're the ones that saw the screwed up thing. Um, they're actually not very useful people. Problem solvers are. Right. (laughs) But with the problem finder, you can retrain them. So when they say, I thought management made a stupid decision, that's ridiculous, they shouldn't have done that, then you want to ask them two questions, and the second question is more important. Question one, if you were management, what decision would you make? Question two, if you were management, what information would you want to have to make the best decision? Right. So we can teach people about how to think. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and so that so back to, you know, what's the role of the CEO? The role of the CEO is to teach and demonstrate the way you want people to operate. I love that. You're right. The teacher scholar mentality is a, is a necessity, right? It's not a boss subordinate mm-hmm. thing, it's a teacher scholar thing. And I, to me, it, what, as you were saying that, I was thinking it's really about um it's easy what's the old kind of um analogy or, or, or visual. It's like, I don't have a lot of patience for somebody who's, you know, it's easy to criticize when you're not in the arena. Right. And so when you're, when you're asking those questions, it's like, you're pulling people, okay, be part of the arena. And then, then that's right. Right. That's right. Be a problem solver, not a problem finder. Mm -hmm. You know, I I tell people like, uh, you know, I've spent 30 years in the room where promotions are done 30 years. Right. Right. I know exactly what happens. And and I'm telling you that person who always points out that somebody else screwed up is rarely the person that gets the opportunity to lead others. That's right. That is so true. Right. And, and that, you know, even the silence, that's the other thing in organizations. If you have an organization that is led by a charismatic leader, that charismatic leader has to be able to back to my story about the, the team where I had too many ideas 
you know, a great leader understands that people that are not like you are really important too. I think when I started this whole kind of leadership, um, you know, when I think back to 2001, when I was thrust in the corporate arena after getting laid off from American, uh, that was my kind of my big mantra was the kind of the fight against the and and I think it was short sighted and the fight against the the charismatic leader. I was the champion for the introvert, and it was really what I was I think I was, and that was a little superficial. I think what I was trying to get at was what you're alluding to there, and it's like. <clears throat> There's a, there's a thousand different ways to lead. I don't care if you're charismatic or introverted, but the bottom line is you got to get in the fold, right? You've got to get in the, uh, yeah, you know, your job, I, you know, you, you had a couple of things that you tell CEOs. Um, you know, I always say that it's your job is to have the right people that can do the right things in, you know, in the right order and the right time frame with a smile on their face and a song in their heart. Right. So it's not just that they can, they have to want to and feel, um, feel like they accomplished something when they're done with it. And so that's, you know, I, I say the job of management is just to build, um, build great teams that do amazing work on time with quality that serve the customer period. Simple. Right. Yeah. But that simplicity is all of those things we've talked exactly. about. Right. right. It's, it's that it's, it's constantly looking for, if I said this, do we do this? It's holding uh, your own team accountable. That's the other thing that we touched on today, which is people get cynical because you, you know, you as a CEO, you say something and you believe it and you live it, but not your VP of sales. They get an exception. Right. Or not that. Right. So even though so those leadership teams, you know, everybody looks up to the whole team and how that team operates to imprint on how their team should operate as well. So those are the and as the organizations get bigger and bigger, um, that's where the, you know, the way that behavior of the teams and the leaders has to be consistent across the organization. And that's going to change as the organization grows. And and back to the, you know, when we were talking about startups, I always tell my startup clients, they say, look, you only have three, there's only three endings to this story. <laughs> you get bigger, you get smaller, you get eaten, right? Um, smaller's death. And, and by the way, there are no hugely successful global corporations with 45 people in them. Right. <laughs> so when, when things start to change and it's not like it used to be, and it doesn't feel the same when we were all in the same room, the reason that those terrible things are happening is called success. So <laughs> then that's a good thing. I, you know, I talk a lot about the whiff of nostalgia, <laughs> you know, yeah, if you start it. having people go, remember how it used to be. Yeah, danger, then danger. That. <laughs> danger, danger, Will Robinson. Now mm -hmm. it's time to have the conversation that says, Hey, things are not like they used to be. Isn't that great? Right. Right. Wait till you see next year. It's not going to look anything like this year. Right. Yeah. Right. It's going to feel and look really different. And we're going to talk about that and make that journey. Right. Because you can't, that's the other, I guess I'll, with that one, you know, how do we keep our culture? You don't. Mm -mm, no. Right. Well, I think that that's what, I don't know. And maybe that's why I think in the beginning, like we said, that you found Navy SEALs and other people who've been around this small unit leadership culture who, yeah, we, we, we appreciate where we've came from, but we understand that it's ever changing. And to me, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it is a life and death analogy. I don't think it, and that's why I, like I saw an article uh, somewhere online, I think in November, it kind of pissed me off when I read that. And it, the title of it was Netflix culture of fear. And it was kind of like, yeah, yeah you know, Patty McCord created this and now she's gone. And, and, yeah. and I'm like, you know what? I bet you, I don't know. I would rather work in a place that like that than one that kind of was trying to create, like you said, the kegerators and the feeling. And I, I don't know. I, but I, you it's know, the warrior it, mindset. It's I guess. Not, right. The Netflix culture is very unique. Um, and it is, you know, remember Netflix is one product company. Right. Right. And and the Netflix I left, when I left Netflix, I always I always say that I'm a serial entrepreneur. So here's my three startups I got to have at Netflix. The first one you would only remember because you're in the U.S. was DVD by mail. Right. 
Um, that business took about five years to actually get rolling. It was life or death for the first four. Mm-hmm. We were almost broke before we won that business, right? The fact that we put Blockbuster out of business was unheard of right. at the time, right? right? That was my startup number one. Startup number two was, uh, well, first startup before DVD by mail, which is trying to figure out a business case before we ran out of money. <laughs> 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 and that was about four years of touch and go. And then we figured out DVD by mail. And the most important part of DVD by mail was subscription. Right. So that was the deep underlying business case that changed everything. And then the third startup that I was at at Netflix was the technology behind streaming. And um, it was very, very, very difficult. It all seems so easy now. But, you know, I, it took us four years to go to where something would play instantly when you push the play button. because as we used to have to buffer for seven seconds. Right. <laughs> right. So, um, so that, and then at Netflix now is a global content provider. The, there are more people in Los Angeles and in the movie studios around the world than there are technologists. Yeah. And so absolutely time for, I'm not the right person to run an LA based content company. Right. <laughs> it's not, not my sweet spot. Um, so that may complete, that's complete completely sensible. And, but that particular culture is unique to that particular company and it's not for everybody. Right. And, and some people like to be more nurtured and they like to be more predictable and they really would prefer that somebody else take the heat and make the decisions. And that's okay too. I mean, you know, there are plenty of organizations that will always exist like that. But you know, it's not the, the but the, the deep underlying premise that's true for all of our organizations is it's not a lifetime promise. It's just not true, right? And so well, I think that's what made me mad know, about the, the maybe the context of the author of the ar- article because it was again someone like, well, we got to be adhering to this instead of articulating like you just did. Yeah, it may not be for some people, and that's okay. But for the people that it is, this is it may work out great. Why can't we just? Yeah, and you know what? You know what's what's always crazy to me because people tell me that you know, like, well, you know, how do you know it worked? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> right, well, uh, hello. <laughs> let's see. Um, I don't know. Pick a metric, any metric, exactly. right? Um, uh, and, and you know, I, I, my Netflix friends, my forever friends at Netflix, I talk to them all the time now, and they're having some really interesting challenges with the culture globally. Because when you're in a larger, you know, societal culture that's command and control, literally, <laughs> then the idea of personal freedom and responsibility is kind of, you know, that's hard to pull off. And so the company is going through lots of um, lots of changes. The culture is constantly evolving because of the global nature of the business. Right. And that speaks to the larger of all mankind, right? It's always the people, you know. I want a culture yeah. of freedom, responsibility. I want a culture where somebody takes care of me. It's just age old. Well, right? and just, you know, if I look at the story, all the evolution, I mean, the, I think the most radical thing, that's the, the quote, culture of fear thing is, um, you know, what if, what if Netflix doesn't need you anymore? And the answer is they might not. Right. Right. And what's really interesting, I'll leave you with this, is uh, there are 11 people who I worked with when I was at Netflix the year that I left who also left the year that I left. We all went on and did some other stuff that are back. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. They've gone back into the company and Reed will tell me that they're so much more valuable because of the years of experience they had at other firms. That's awesome. Yeah. Which makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Good to know. So, I mean, that's back to the, the one, the, the CEO, the startup CEO who said to me, are you telling me that I could put my heart and soul into developing these people for seven or eight years and we go public and we're successful and they leave? Yep. I'm like, would you really, do you really think you'll be a successful company, you know, seven years out with people who only have seven years of experience here? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's a great like way to look at it. It's so awesome. Yeah. Holy- Experience. I'm like, I don't think you're going to be around seven years out if it's the same 200. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Because they don't know how to do anything else. That's right. Well, again, this is why I love you and love the way that you look at it. It's just absolutely refreshing. And uh, I can't believe we've been talking for almost an hour here. But uh, how can people? How can people get in touch with you? Um, How 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 can people reach out to you? 
Uh, you can go to my website, uh, pattymccord.com. Uh, it's a good way to do it. I connect with a lot of people on LinkedIn. You know, um, I update my website all the time with podcasts and videos and stuff. So it's a good way to get to know me without me having to be in your room. Patty, thank you for coming on. I'm so happy to have finally met you and um, talk the same language and beliefs that I have. It's just so refreshing. And you're such a powerful, refreshing force out there in, in the world when it comes to culture and leadership. And I'm so blessed to know you. Oh, thank you, Richard. Sounds like you're doing the same thing. So kudos to you. Right. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Dose of Leadership. Go to doseofleadership.com if you want to learn more about my leadership speaking, coaching, and training services. I'd love to hear from you. Maybe I can help you out in your next event or solve any of your upcoming leadership challenges. This episode is brought to you by my sponsor, RSM Marketing. RSM is the originator of the outsource marketing department, the OMD model, where businesses just like yours can get remarkable marketing that's easy and affordable. You can get all these marketing services along with a time-shared marketing director wrapped nicely in a flat monthly subscription. It's definitely the way to go. If you're struggling with marketing, check out my friends at RSM Marketing. They've figured out a way to get you all kinds of marketing services at your fingertips whenever you want. You pay for only what you need. You don't have to have this expensive in-house overhead to tackle all your marketing challenges. I mean, these guys do everything from marketing strategy to planning, project management, video production, photography, radio production, print design, SEO, online marketing, website design, on and on and on. Go check them out. Learn more at rsmconnect.com. That's rsmconnect.com slash dose of leadership. You can download a free outsourced marketing department guidebook for a more comprehensive overview on how you can leverage OMD for your marketing needs. That's rsmconnect.com slash dose of leadership.